we have to distinguish what is the objective. The investor has to ask himself the most important question in life from a philosophical uh, point of view is who I am, how do I behave? Hello, and welcome to the Market Bull Podcast. Please note, topics and stocks discussed in this podcast are not financial or investment advice. Dr. Mark Faber is the editor and publisher of the Gloom, Boom and Doom Report, an in-depth economic and financial publication which highlights unusual investment opportunities across the globe. Mark talked about his rich history in investing across the world and why he has made a continuous effort to look for investments in undervalued markets. Mark talked about the current economic and political environments globally and what he sees unfolding in 2024. Mark pointed to where he sees values and how he developed his investment philosophy. Here is Mark Faber. So hello, I'm Ben Kostrich and this is the Market Bull Podcast. Joining me today, I'm very excited, is Dr. Mark Faber, the editor and publisher of the Gloom, Boom and Doom Report. Uh, it's an in-depth economic and financial publication uh, and I'll, we'll talk about it, but highlighting unusual investment opportunities. I'm sure we'll delve into that later, but welcome to the show, Mark. Well, thank you very much for having me and I look forward to share some of my views with your listeners and viewers. And a happy new year to all of you. Yes, of course. Of well, uh, the, the markets haven't really stopped. There's been a fair bit of activity already across the board. And we'll delve into, well, really, as we're speaking, you're in Thailand and we we're just discussing your routine as, well, I guess, out of the ordinary for, for most sort of investors living in Thailand. But your history and, and background, delving into why you started and, and almost your interest in, in building your, your career in, in this side of the world, where did you start and how did you navigate through the, well, almost 50 years of, of investment experience? Yes, actually it's more than 50 years, mm, but more than 50. Yes. Uh, I was born in Switzerland and grew up in Switzerland, in Geneva and Zurich. And then I studied in London, partly at the London school of economics and finished my PhD, uh, at the time. And then uh, I was looking for a job and I didn't know what to do. But in those days, it was relatively easy to find a job for someone who had studied and who had the top title and who spoke several languages. So I got a job in New York uh, with White Weldon Company. This was a large investment bank. And I started in 1970 there. And in 73, Whitewell said, well, we want someone to build up our business in Asia, focusing on Japan. So they sent me to Hong Kong and then I was working out of Hong Kong, but covering the region. And then in 78, uh, Whitewell merged with Merrill Lynch. And I don't think that Merrill Lynch particularly wanted me to be working for them. And I didn't want to work for Merrill Lynch for a variety of reasons, not because the firm wasn't very good, but I opened then the offices of Drexel Burnham Lambert, which was a specialist in uh, commodities and famous for its trading of junk bonds, high yield bonds. And then in 1990, the firm 
essentially folded. It went out of business for liquidity problems. And I then started my own business in Hong Kong, which I ran uh, out of Hong Kong until 2000. And then I decided because I was traveling so much that I didn't need to live in Hong Kong. And we had bought a property during the Asian crisis in 1997 in Thailand. And so I moved to Thailand and I traveled about 80% of the time for a while until COVID. And now uh, during COVID, I didn't like to travel much because I never believed in this vaccine bullshit. Mm. And so I, um, now I can travel again, but my appetite to travel is uh, reduced because I have a very nice life. And as you can see, instead of going to you to a studio, we can do the same through Zoom or Microsoft Team or whatever. And this is a huge advantage for me and for many other people that they can talk to each other without being close. Uh, without having to uh, be in the same room inconvenience to go through custom officers and immigration idiots and so forth and so on yeah well i mean on a, on a side note yeah airport travel is still a bit of a, a a kerfuffle these days trying to get through it all but that's a that's a different subject altogether but I mean, throughout your time, you've, you've been almost all across the world with a, a focus on, yeah. you could say Asia and, uh, and you really highlight in your, I guess, underinvested or, or opportunity markets and your strategy and the way that it's evolved throughout the years. I, I mean, was there certain experiences or exposure to markets that really, I guess, molded you into, into this formation as you'd say contrarian and, and arguably what you're looking at? Traditional, well, not traditional, but your everyday investor might not even consider them. Well, uh, before I finished my studies, a few months before, I had the view that I wanted to essentially travel around the world. And uh, I had accumulated some money during my studies because I was in the ski team uh, of Switzerland. And during ski racing times, we earned some money. I mean, not much, but anyway, uh, I put all my money into two stocks. I thought uh, either they double and I go and travel around the world or I go and work. <laughs> the result was I went to work right away because Quick lesson. because the U S market, the typical speculative stock had peaked out in 68, but by 1969 and 1970, they were very low. They had gone down by 90%. In this case, I bought Lytton and uh, Penn Central. And within six months after declining 90%, they declined another 90%. <laughs> so I went to work. Actually, Penn Central went past. But Layton then uh, went down another 90% to about $2. And then he turned around in, uh, after 1970 and 74 and went up strongly. But, uh, you know, this is uh, the stock market. The fact that something goes down 90% uh, doesn't mean that it's cheap. It may have been dramatically expensive before. <laughs> 
No, very, very true. And, and I mean, with that, those sorts of moments, did you then start realizing that you were, I guess, growing or finding an appetite for certain sort of development or investment vehicles? And I mean, your, your outlook, did, how did that sort of adjust to start looking at, you know, Asia or, you know, as you said earlier, maybe Australia and just this global outlook that even me thinking about it now, it would have been, well, these days it's very easy to, to buy and, and sell uh, any sort of asset across the world in a way, but you know, 20, 30 years ago, it would have been a very different ballpark. So all of those factors that have, uh, I guess, improved and how have you found all that sort of evolved and changed? Well, I, I was always interested in two things, uh, kind of results of races. Like I followed very closely the bicycle races in Europe, you know, like the Tour de France. Mm. the Giro d'Italia and the Vuelta in Spain. And I was always fascinated by the ranking of the racers. So I had a f feeling for figures uh, or an interest in figures. And two, I had become interested through my thesis, but already before I studied, I, I enjoyed history. But through my studies, which, which was about the financial reform of Sir Robert Peel, he was a British prime minister between, I think, 1842 and 1846. And I, and his great merit was to take Britain from a system of protectionism to free trade under the influence of the free traders like Richard Cobden. And his great merit was to abolish the Corn Laws and the Navigation Act and introduce as a permanent measure an income tax, which was at the mm. time fixed at 7% of incomes. And there were maybe only 5,000 people in the British Empire that paid this tax, so certainly they didn't pay much. And it was a minor source of income. But it was the start of income taxes around the world. And I'd like to say here right away, it's interesting that the 19th century, which was an incredible century of progress in science, in uh, industrial production, in the inventions and so forth and so on, the central, the governments of the world in Europe and in America, None uh, had tax revenues of more than 12% of GDP, 12%. In other words, the governments were small and the private sector was big. And what has happened since the introduction of central banks in 1912 is the government has grown like a cancer and destroyed the private sector and its initiative or made it difficult for businessmen to operate. And that's why we have the relatively poor economic growth compared to the 19th century. And the other great occurrence of the 19th century is that all this growth occurred without central banks. It's a complete nonsense tell the public that central banks have helped economic growth. They have retarded economic growth because they're a tool of the socialists. 
and of the imperialists and of the interventionists without high tax revenues, without high government expenditures and an enlarged government, the personal freedom of people would be much higher than what we have today. We have dictatorial governments in your country, Australia, especially to lock up people the way yes. they did it. Yeah. And that is almost a distant sympathy. memory for many. Yeah. Yes. Our great sympathy for all the people that have the courage to go and demonstrate against the despotic government and incompetent government. That is adds to it. Mm. No, it was a, it was a fascinating time and, and it, it is, it's, it's scary to think that it all really unraveled, you know, four years ago. And for many, it's almost a distant memory and there's still, uh, I guess, pockets of communities that are infatuated with it. But I can already see here, this has really been a, almost a, a driving force behind, well, where your outlook or, or opportunities from investing has been going. Uh, and at the beginning, uh, I alluded to your, I guess yeah. your, your statement on the, the gloom doom about unusual investment opportunities around yeah. the world. And I mean, unpacking that for, for many reading that you, you'd sort of, it's a good hint. What does that actually mean? And, and more so, I mean, where have you been really prioritizing your investment outlook and, and opportunities? Well, it, you know, you go through life and, uh, throughout your life, there are a lot of variations in the investment opportunities. So when I started in 1970, uh, 10 years, U.S. government bonds were yielding, say, around 6%. And then uh, we had a period of accelerating inflation. And during this period of accelerating inflation, we had uh, the outperformance of energy stocks and mining stocks with the result that by 1980-81, the energy sector made up for something like 35% of the S&P 500 in the US. So we have to start 10, first 10 years, high inflation, accelerating inflation, and also a period of rapid interest rate increases whereby interest rates already in 1969, when inflation was about the same as it's uh, been now in 2022. But uh, at that time, the 10 years reached already over 9% yield. And then we dropped into 1974 and uh, into 1973. And then we rose again sharply until 74, when the yield on the 10 years was 12%. But inflation wasn't any higher than it's been recently. In other words, we have waves of inflation, rising inflation, then it cools down and then it takes off again. And it would be wrong to assume that the bulk of the existing inflation we have now in the system is already over. It could be under some conditions, but it could also be just a temporary relief before inflation accelerates again. It's a monetary phenomenon and it has to do with fiscal deficits. You will not get inflation when you have a balanced budget. In other words, when the government 
every year collects the tax, it needs to expend. You would also have no wars if people had to pay for the wars. Mm. But the government borrows money, so the public doesn't really see it. Inflation is a tax. It is a very vicious tax because it hits some classes of society much harder than other classes of societies. Yeah. In the 80s, we had the rules of the investment game changing. Uh, In 1970, gold was $35 an ounce. The peak in 1980 was $850. Silver went from something like $2 to $50 in a short squeeze. And I was there involved in this wave of speculation. Our office in Hong Kong, we had a visitor's gallery where the speculators would come in at night with the nightclub hostesses and trade gold and silver. (laughs) All right. Yeah. And then the rules of the game changed. After 1980, we had a period of disinflation. In other words, we didn't have deflation with prices coming down, but the rate of inflation slowed down. And we entered a period of essentially 40 years during which interest rates and inflation came down. And in the US, they bottomed out in May 2020. After that, we are now again, in my view, in a period of rising inflation and rising interest rate. But these are long cycles, you understand? And then the other major feature of the 1980s was the financialization of the world. In other words, financial markets became much bigger than the economy because they were expanding and expanding because of money printing. And a further, very important feature was that when I went to Hong Kong in 73, we were eager to get rich uh, people in Asia to invest in the U.S. and uh, to buy U.S. bonds and to develop business with financial institutions. My first client in Australia was Commonwealth Mining. They had a beautiful building in Sydney on the harbor. <laughs> and uh, Friedman was running it. Freeman. And he, we became friends. And then I uh, witnessed the rise of BT Australia. Chris Corrigan is a good friend and Olive Brown and so forth. So I know Australia very well. And then I discovered that many wealthy Australians wanted to have money outside Australia for tax reasons. And so I developed a private business also. But in the early 80s, it occurred to me that many emerging markets in Asia, Philippines and uh, Hong Kong also, because we had a slump in the real estate market after 1980, and Singapore and Thailand and so forth, and also Taiwan, South Korea, they were very cheap compared to Japanese stocks. So I tried to get American institutions and European institutions to invest in Asia, which was partially successful. And by 86, I noticed that Asia was expensive, but uh, because I had read a very important book, uh, The Economics of Inflation, 
I discovered that Argentina, Brazil, and Peru, and also Colombia were very inexpensive, these markets. I traveled to Argentina. The whole stock market was worth $500 million. Then, <laughs> and then I started to invest in Argentina and in Chile and in Brazil. And I wrote about this. And that when Barron's in America, this financial paper, became interested in me because I discovered these Latin American markets. And so what I want to say is that when you're born and when you start to work, there is one sector of the world that will do well. When I started to work, Japan was rising and uh, the stock market rose until 89. But after that, it went to sleep or into fair market. But more recently, after 1990, Chinese stocks became kind of the hot commodity. And then they went ballistic. And the Nasdaq, of course, until the year 2000. And now in the last uh, few years, the Fang and Fang-related stocks, the Magnificent Seven. So each period has a different characteristic. And uh, this, I think, is a very fascinating uh, feature of being involved in financial markets because it's never the same. Uh, if you are, say, a carpenter, you can uh, use your technology or your knowledge more or less the same way for ages. But in financial markets, everything changes rapidly all the time. And you have to focus on different sectors uh, from time to time. And this keeps you essentially always on your guards. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't say it keeps you young because I also... It's, it's a very... If you're interested in history, if you're interested, uh, some people are less fascinated, but I'm fascinated by price movements. The price of gold goes up or the price of cocoa. It's interesting in the 70s, the first commodities to peak out were wheat, corn, soybeans in 1973. And then in 77, there was a huge boom in cocoa and in coffee. They collapsed. And then the precious metals and oil continued to go up until 1980. So even in an inflationary time, you can have assets that go down. That many people don't understand. Because inflation doesn't lift all prices equally. It lifts here, then here, and so forth. So this is essentially the, the, what I experienced. And... Uh, I mean, it's been a very interesting time and fascinating time. And I've seen the whole world because I traveled to all these emerging economies. And when you're talking about investing, I'm, I always find it interesting to break down. You mentioned there, you know, it could be a stock, for example, or it could be a commodity, but it could be a physical, you know, buying and, and trailing coffee beans or, or wool or whatever. So when you're talking about that and real estate, of course, and property, I mean, the, the investment portfolio. Uh, I mean, nowadays, your modern sort of approach or outlook, I mean, have you got some sort of divergence across, you know, holding physical currency or gold versus investing in property versus, uh, you know, trading coffee beans, for example, because all of these are encapsulating investing. Uh, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on crypto as well as a, a new emerging uh, you know, something as an everyday investor should be at least monitoring because there's been some 
interesting, I guess, developments in that space. But where do you sort of compile a lot of your investment uh, decisions or, or areas that you look at? Or do you, as you said, follow the the seasonality components, the charts, the graphs, and and reflect on what's happened in history? Because typically us humans are pretty good at repeating it. Yes, we are experts at making the same mistakes. But I think uh, we have to distinguish what is the objective. The investor has to ask himself the most important question in life from a philosophical uh, point of view is who I am, how do I behave? I'm impulsive, uh, I'm uh, passionate, or I'm more uh, balanced and um, I am willing to take risks. If you're mm -hmm. like, I still ride uh, racing bikes <laughs> and in Thailand uh, to drive motorcycles of any size. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah. is an adventure in yeah. itself, isn't it? You have to be an optimist to drive to sit down a motorcycle in Thailand. But anyway, uh, some people are risk averse. I mean, I've seen it with my clients. You could explain to someone the situation that look attractive and he wouldn't do it. And I had a very nice client, I have to say he was impulsive, Kerry Packer, he would take any risk. For money, he wouldn't take any risk. And if he lost, he lost, he cursed you for an evening and the next day he was again very nice on the telephone. But uh, I enjoyed working with him because he was a tycoon, someone who had the guts and he did uh, take his responsibility. You understand? Nowadays, you look at the CEOs, they're all vokes. Uh, they go with the stream. They support socialists like the BLM movement and so forth. They're crazy. They're crazy. They have no uh, personality. They're afraid to lose their jobs. That is something in life you should never be afraid of, to lose your job. Because one door closes, another one opens up. Uh, the point is, I have some investments and some trades of taking risks, whereby we then need to later on discuss the risk taking. And then I'm very conscious about, you know, at my age, it would be difficult for me to do a manual job like being a waiter or a construction worker. You see, physically, you're not as fit as when you're 30 years old or 25. Or, um, and so I have some investments that I perceive to be relatively safe. But this is my perception. Maybe someone else would say, look, Mark, you have properties in Vietnam, they're not safe. But then I could turn around and say, well, our properties in Switzerland and in Germany, and they're not safe either because the government can take it away from you or they can tax it away from you. We've done that all the time throughout history. So when I grew up in the fifties, it was safe to put money in a bank on deposit. My grandparents always said, Mark, uh, you have to set, you have to earn money. And 10% of your income you have to save 
in a bank, put the money in a bank. My grandparents, they owned some shares in uh, air cables because they were pioneers, winter sport industry. And they had built a hotel in the mountains. But uh, what was safe then to have money on deposit in a bank is nowadays no longer safe. You know, the, I mean, we, we had so many examples in uh, Cyprus. The deposits were all declared worthless, except some insiders. Mm. And, and uh, the deposit was then paid back $100,000 each, irrespective whether you had $20 million or 200000 so nothing is safe. Gold, in principle, should be safe, but the government can take it away. And I'm especially afraid of the bureaucracies we have today because they can do anything and nobody ever gets punished. They get rewarded. Just look at who is the president of the uh, EU, Ursula von der Leyen. Someone who is completely incompetent where was shot upstairs. Mm -hmm. Similar for, for Habeck, similar for uh, Baerbock. All these characters, they are incompetent to the extreme, but because they were inconvenient as through their incompetence, they were shot upstairs. This is the difference between the private sector and the government. In general, in the private sectors and certainly in China, Capable people come to the top, but in government, the most incompetent people climb. Interesting. So then uh, presenting that, that point of view and, and I guess that outlook and like it, there's no denying that government sizes have increased and, and bureaucracy and, and red tape has definitely emerged. But I always look to, to people and individuals always innovating and finding, uh, I guess, ways to yeah, innovate and think outside of the box, so to speak. So with that outlook, uh, where do you see the, the opportunities or the optimist side of it? Um, because with that sort of outlook and I guess the trajectory, you would assume that, and it's thrown around a lot, you know, a centralized digital bank currency, which would be a, a terrifying reality. And I know there's, you know, talks of that and, and it's, it's amazing how, you know, everyone can have different opinions on it, but there's definitely sorts of uh, scary implications of it, but, but, you know, pursuing that trajectory, I mean, where, where can you see, I guess, the potential turning point or realization, um, sort of, uh, adjusting that course of action or that path? Well, my view would be that, um, we will have continuous, uh, tendency to the left because governments, uh, they have to justify their existence by interventions. I believe the best government is the one that does the least. In other words, it uh, reduces regulation uh, and uh, reduces the number of laws. And there are some disadvantages involved with that, but the advantage is the economy becomes freer. Just consider it. There are some countries where someone can just open a, a small restaurant and he, he just has to get the license and that's it. Uh, the restaurant may not have the toilets of the standard of Australia and of Europe and no 
special toilets for people in wheelchairs and so forth. But at the same time, the guy who has the initiative to open the restaurant, he can do it. Now, I've seen that with friends of mine who opened, my wife had a restaurant in Hong Kong, a Thai restaurant because she's Thai. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen it. The regulation is such that there is this office of the government that will come and check the sanitary installations and the police uh, of the firemen comes and checks this and the people of hygiene come and checks that and so forth. In Western countries and in America, it's very difficult to open a restaurant for a, a, a normal person because I want to explain that this regulation is actually encouraged by big corporations. Starbucks, as an example, they open a new store. They have their own engineer. He comes, he knows exactly what the regulation is. Mm. And then they have their own lawyer. He knows exactly what the legal situation is in Australia. And then they have their uh, accountant and their all kinds of experts. You understand? They, first of all, they know the government officials already. They know which, to which office to go. And they also know who to bribe. This is very mm. important in life. Because the beauty of socialism, if there is any beauty, is that the socialists can easily be bribed. They take, they do anything for money. Someone who is in the private sector knows that essentially corruption is not particularly desirable in an economic system. So he's sort of trying to do his best or compete based on his ability to manage a business and on innovation and on efficiency. This is different with the socialist. He doesn't think that way. He thinks everybody should be the same so nobody works. Mm. So this is a very important point. The more regulation you have, the less dynamic the system becomes. In this respect, I just want to tell you, I was born in 46 and already in the mid-50s, my mother took us children, my brother and me, to Yugoslavia. This was a communist country at the time, run by Tito. I have a picture of him up here. So anyway, uh, I saw as a child already how low the standards of living was in Yugoslavia. At that time, it was still one country. And uh, later on, when I was ski racing, I went frequently to Eastern Europe and I saw how low the standards of living of people in Eastern Europe was. I mean, you could cross the border and see it with mm. eyes, how depressed people were and in what kind of a poverty they live compared to the Western world. And you can see it yourself in statistics. How many Westerners were fleeing to Eastern Europe? None. How mm. many Eastern Europe were fleeing to the West? Notably, how many Germans from Eastern Europe fled to Western Germany? Countless people. Anyway, the moment these economies, Russia, and that the first time I went to Russia was in 1980, but then they opened up after the Berlin Wall fell. Uh, then Russia, there was a boom. First, the depression for two years, 
and then a boom, and we had one of the first Russian funds. Uh, my my partners and I, the Firebird Fund, which did very well in the 1990s, and then uh, China opened up in 1978, and the first 10 years were difficult. I mean, the exports went up, and cities developed mostly um, Pearl River Delta. But when the country, the whole country uh, grew very rapidly in the 1990s and after 2000. So the one thing I can say to be optimistic, when I look at poor countries and the countries adopted the capitalistic system, everybody became wealthier and everybody increased his position in society and his standard of living. Now, I'm not saying that they all grew and developed Some, the same yeah. uh, race. You know, it's like a horse race. The capable horses run faster than the incapable ones. It's always in a free society. Capable people move ahead more rapidly than incapable people. But everybody's standards of living is lifted by the capable people. And uh, this is something that has encouraged me in the world, say, to see how poor people became not rich in per capita income like the typical Australian, typical Swiss or American, but compared to what they were before, their lives have improved dramatically. And what do the Western governments do against leaders who have brought up their societies to a high standard of living? A good example is Lee Kuan Yew. The Americans pitched all the time about him because he was kind of a benevolent dictator. But Singapore was relatively free. And he lifted the standards of living. He's one of the richest cities in the world. They also hate, but they can't say it. They hate the Sultan of uh, Dubai because it's not a democracy. It's the proof that a dictator, a ruler, a monarch can bring up a country to extreme success alone without this democratic nonsense. Mm -hmm. Interesting. No, the rise of both and those money, countries. Money yeah. in India. He did in eight years, now seven and a half years more, then the whole Gandhi clan before him. But the Gandhi clan bought American politicians, so they all applauded. But Modi has his own personality. And then a British foreign minister who became prime minister later, Liz Trust, went to India to teach the Indians what to do and how to behave. India has now overtaken Britain in, in terms of size of the economy. And do oh, you well. think the British can go to China and start an opium war nowadays? It's laughable. It's mm. laughable. Oh, China has 28% of global industrial production, much bigger than uh, the U.S. They produce as much cement as the rest of the world combined. Combined. If I were Australia, I would be friendly with China. And not with the U.S. Yeah, we there. It does flash me back to uh, the the again the COVID time with some interesting 
things. And the, the geopolitical landscape, of course, is, well, very interesting at the moment. And a lot of it always ramps up when uh, election cycles are on. Uh, and I have a sneaking assumption that with the, the US in particular, with that election cycle, it's going to be a very interesting next period of time. Uh, but as we're talking of time, you're, you're constantly, I guess, covering markets and, and of course the, the gloom, boom and doom report, uh, you've, you've been doing that for a, a fair amount of time when you're, when you've been doing that or why did you start it and, and what is in it and how can, I guess, listeners or, or viewers, uh, follow it and get engaged with, I guess, your commentary and your, your wealth of knowledge about, you know economics and, and political points and, and clearly from the background, a fair bit of reading as well. And they should listen to your podcast. <laughs> no, I mean, when I started to work for Wall Street, believe me, because we had fixed foreign exchange rates in 1970, that Nixon went off the gold standard and the Bretton Woods Agreement in uh, August 71. But we in Europe, we were familiar with fluctuating currencies, but Americans didn't. For them, the dollar was the dollar, and that's it. And so I thought I start to write my own reports while at White Wealth, already after 1970. And I went to make presentations to Japanese institutions and to wealthy people in Asia to show that, you know, I, I know something and I'm involved in economics. And Asians, they value education highly. And so with my own reports, I got an audience of people who listened to me of course, they also read the research by Whiteweld and by Drexel Burnham later on, on and so forth. But uh, Drexel was always bullish. You understand? Always. And uh, our strategist became then the chief strategist of Goldman Sachs. She was bullish all the time. Never. And I thought stocks move up and move down and currency move up and down and so forth. So I tried to be more market sensitive. And I predicted at the time, crash in 87, it was coincidence that it happened. <laughs> uh, uh, but Japan, I also predicted that Japan would collapse. And I won bets because I said Japan in 89 would drop by 50% minimum. I. My expectation was exceeded. It dropped by more than 75%. But so I discovered sectors that were the most popular, that these sectors would eventually go down the most. It's like the dot-com bubble. Mm. And I think farm-related stocks. And by the way, about the, uh, the dot-com bubble, I remember. I was invited by uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corp to debate a portfolio manager who was at the time at BT Australia. And he told the audience how great the company Cisco was and that it would grow forever and that they controlled the server market and this and that and so forth. And I said, it's possible that Cisco will continue to grow, but it doesn't mean that the stock will go up because I've seen it in 73. 
the most popular stocks in 73 in America were companies like Xerox, Kodak, Polaroid. Look where these stocks are today. Mm -hmm. And then another group of popular stocks were Levitz Furniture, Sears, Kreisky, and so forth. Very few of these companies have survived. <laughs> you. And not, you know, the big success in technology where all companies, with the exception of Apple and Amazon, that were actually uh, listed after year 2000. These are new companies, Facebook, Google, uh, and so forth. And so uh, that's what I'm saying. You, the, the rules of the game change occasionally. It's like a casino. Mm. If a gambler wins a lot, they'll kick him out. Yeah. House always wins. Yes. Oh, fascinating. And yeah, of course, I mean, it's, it's a publication, uh, of people can subscribe, but I mean, what do you, you cover a lot of things and is it a monthly or a weekly? I mean, well, how can people actually engage, engage with the newsletter that you've got? First of all, it's an educational letter. Uh, if someone has no time, he shouldn't read it because he should look up things I discuss because occasionally I discuss historical events, partly because I'm interested in history, partly because now I'm studying the history of Rome for the third time in my life. The first time I hated it because I was at school and I hated school. I couldn't stand school, <coughs> although I finished it. But <laughs> and now I have time to do it. And I do it leisurely, you know, like when I wake up in the morning, I listen to podcasts about the uh, Roman emperors and so forth. There's some very good Roman history, and it's so great to listen to uh, history. But then you have to look it up yourself in books, you know, the details. And it's remarkable how empires' history have changed little since those days. Because a common feature in empires is always, how do you manage it? It's very difficult how to manage. How do you manage the succession? Now, in modern democracy, the succession is through the voting process and so forth. But you can uh, debate whether we have uh, regular elections or whether they're influenced by money and this and that. Anyway, and then... Uh, most empires actually went down the drains eventually because of a lack of money. They ran out of money. And it's interesting, the Roman Empire expanded because it initially all the new territories they conquered were profitable. There was gold and silver in these regions and trade flourished and so forth. But eventually other countries came up it's like an athlete. You know, Djokovic is the best tennis player that has ever existed. The Australians didn't want to have him because the Americans called Australian prime minister and said, don't let someone in without the vaccine. It's ridiculous. This is precisely what I talked to you about at the beginning. Mm. Some bureaucrats acted in the way that uh, people of Australia didn't want. The ordinary Australian was all for him to come to Australia. 
but the government wanted to show their power. They behaved worse than any uh, royalty ever behaved throughout history. Really, I mean, this upsets me very badly that these uh, government officials, without any qualification, without any knowledge or medical knowledge, uh, imposed lockdowns on ordinary citizens and portrayed them as if they were idiots that didn't want to take the vaccine. Mm. That is the worst part. Yeah. Anyway, I, yeah. Uh, all I want to say is he will also go down one day because others are becoming better. And I was in ski racing, and you can see it. suddenly someone improves or is younger and is fitter than you and this is more than you do, it becomes better. So uh, this is ec economic life is luckily, this is what we want, change, that new people come up like the Chinese have become industrial power that became an industrial power within the shortest period ever in history. And mm. that gives rise to tensions because the existing power, the U.S. doesn't want another power to come up. The ordinary American, he doesn't care. But the neocons in the state departments who are all criminals, they support wars, they lead to wars. These people cannot accept that the country is successful and not dominated by the U.S. Mm. Well, I can imagine that, as you said, you probably had a fair few followers and, and probably people, but and I love this sort of, ability to speak freely and, and have these conversations because really that's why podcasting is thriving because it gives this exact opportunity to, to be free and passionate and emotive. And that's what's beautiful about it. And as we said, we're doing this from me sitting somewhere in Perth and you sitting somewhere in, in Thailand, but no, I, I appreciate you, you taking the time to speak with me on the show, Mark. I know you're going to have a fairly long, uh, well, the usual routine of now of monitoring markets, but, um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to having you back on to see, you know, if we are learning our lessons, if we are yeah, changing our ways, <laughs> yeah. Seeing what's unfolding, but yeah, thank you so much for, for speaking on the show with me Very today. Pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Take care and to all your viewers, all the best. Thanks for listening to the Markable podcast. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to like, and subscribe. You can follow The Market Bull on our socials at Twitter and LinkedIn by searching The Market Bull. You can also subscribe to our newsletter on the website by visiting www.themarketbull.com.au.